I think the first thing that that I recommend everyone doing and that helps dramatically with a zero trust adoption, but is also just good hygiene in general, is cleaning up your access privileges. I see a lot of people um, kind of diving down that that zero trust approach and focusing on um, identity and access management or privileged access management, put MFA on everything, uh, which is great. That's not bad. But when you have um, stale accounts, um, you have third-party accounts that are still there from you know three years after you ended a vendor relationship, et cetera, um, you're you're starting again from that downhill and trying to fight uphill with zero trust adoption. Welcome to The Edge, the official podcast of the SSE Forum. The SSE Forum brings together people like you, the IT practitioner, who are conquering the biggest challenges in networking and security. Together, the members of the forum share strategy, uncover requirements, and discuss best practices for enabling the modern workplace through security delivered at the network edge. To learn more about the SSE Forum, go to ssceforum.com. IO. This podcast is sponsored by Access Security. Access Security secures the modern workplace. They make access to resources and applications impossibly simple and completely seamless. Take the Access 29 minute challenge. See how easy secure application delivery can be. Learn more at accesssecurity.com. And now, on to the podcast. Today, we are talking with Michael Meese, CISO for the University of Kansas City Health. We cover a wide range of topics, such as how he got his start in IT, how he became a CISO, zero trust, and of course, that ever-present question, Kansas City barbecue or Texas barbecue. Enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. Hello, our listeners. Hello, Michael, um, and welcome to our podcast. Um, as I do with everyone when we start off these, I'd like to ask you kind of where you started, where your career started, and how you kind of ended up where where you are today. I mean, I, I have stalked your LinkedIn, as I do with everyone, um, but I'd be interested in know kind of in, in your words, kind of how everything started. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I was kind of always interested in computers growing up. Uh, my dad worked for, um, at the time, it was this small boutique uh, computer company that would build custom computers for people back when that was you know a lucrative market. Um, and so I, I used to sit around when I was younger and watch him put these computers together. Uh, and so computers always interested me. I always thought I was going to do computer science. And so when I, I joined the army after high school and, uh, and told them I just wanted to do anything to do with computers. And so I ended up in signal communications, um, doing radios, um, and, uh, kind of as, as a, as an, uh, an additional duty to that, um, also started dealing with um, encryption of those communications and then some of like the the server maintenance, et cetera, setting up at the battalion. And uh, it, it was a 
it was a time in the army where they were trying to replace a lot of radios and change to new encryption standards. And so I had the opportunity to kind of travel around and teach people how to use radios, how to load um, encryption fills and, and kind of, kind of talking about transmission security. And so I started getting really interested in that much more than I expected to be. So when I decided to leave the army, um, I wanted to figure out a way that I could still do something in the security realm. So I was a, a civilian supporting DOD uh, for about a year, um, leading a network security team um, in, in a knock, just um, you know, monitoring alerts, those types of things. Um, and I enjoyed that, but it 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 wasn't uh, it, it wasn't really um, hitting every spot that I wanted to. So I started looking around for something else. So. Then I got into the identity space and uh, started doing um, identity governance and access management where we were um, trying to find old stale accounts, upgrade to new accounts, et cetera. And that still wasn't wasn't quite doing it for me. So I did that for about a year. And then I landed in what I really found to be my passion, which was doing incident response. And so I did that for the Department of Agriculture for a couple of years, um, first as a, an actual response analyst and then moving um, back into a leadership role, which um, is really one of my core passions is leading people. And so I, I really enjoyed that, kind of grew through that um, over about five years with the Department of Agriculture. Um, got tired of the government space and wanted to do something else. Um, at, at this point, I had decided that I wanted to become a CISO as well. And so I knew I needed to kind of round out some of my experience as well. And GRC was where I, I had I was weakest. Um, I, my only GRC experience was in the government, which is kind of its own animal in and of itself. So I left the federal consulting space and went to H&R Block. Um, they needed to rebuild their security GRC program. So I just kind of dove headfirst into that, um, started getting into quantitative risk um, and, uh, and cloud governance, which both really excited me as well. And so spent about two years doing that, had a lot of fun, met a lot of great people, um, and then decided I wanted to move into a CISO role. So I started looking um, middle of last year and uh, landed at the University of Kansas Health System, where I have been for the past 13 months. That's a that's a great journey. Uh, my father actually served it. He was in the Coast Guard, but uh, kind of took a similar journey uh, back in the day. This was a long time ago. Uh, he was uh, he was a radio man. So uh, it's, it's interesting to see how that works out. And, um, you know, I got into networking, so I kind of took the mantle, but I never served in the military. So thank you for your service. Um, Thank you. I also had the opportunity to see you speak uh, on the topic of, of, of the art. Your, I think it was the art of war, and it was very mm -hmm. insightful. Um, can you kind of give us some of the, the key takeaways that you provide in that uh, presentation? Yeah, so one of the things I've always been interested in is leadership and, and by extension, the, the strategic portion that comes with being in a leadership role. Um, I'm, I'm not a details person. I've never been a details person. I, I like to focus on big picture and long term. It's always been um, what has interested me the most. And so from a very early age, um, I've read a lot of leadership and strategy books. And the one that I keep coming back to is The Art of War. Um, it has so many different applications across um, business and uh, personal relationships, and then, of course, warfare. 
Um, and so as I got more into the cybersecurity space and started looking at things from a strategic perspective, there are a lot of takeaways from the art of war that can directly apply to a cybersecurity program. So over the course of um, about six months, I was trying to figure out how to make those parallels to uh, address some of the problems that we're facing within a security organization. Um, obviously, in one talk, I can't go through all 13 chapters. And so I started looking for some um, broad strategies that um, apply across the majority of those chapters and really take the, the core context away from it. So I distilled those down into five strategies. Um, the first of those being a focus on victory. There's there's kind of a lot of defeatism um, in cybersecurity right now. We kind of took that uh, when not if statement and put it on steroids, uh, where where we sound like we're fighting this losing battle. And so I think it's important for security leaders to not only define what victory means within their organization, but then also rally their team behind it, so that everyone knows that we can win and that there is a path to victory. Um, the second of them was around knowing yourself and knowing your enemy. Everyone has heard that Sun Tzu quote, and that's something we struggle a lot with. Um, it, when we think of basic things like having an asset inventory, um, that's something a lot of organizations are still struggling to build, but then taking it a step further and understanding your cybersecurity capabilities, understanding the revenue model of your organization and where they make money at so that you can focus on how to protect those pieces of revenue with your capabilities. And then, of course, understanding your adversary. Um, threat intelligence and threat hunter threat hunting um, is kind of an abused term in today's um, modern market. And I really want people to take a step back and understand what it actually means to understand your enemy and um, what it means to do threat hunting. It's not IOC dumps. Um, the third one is knowing your allies. We have a lot of allies in cybersecurity um, where we have vendors that we are partnering with who provide capabilities that we can't build ourselves. We don't want to build ourselves. We don't have the time to build ourselves. Uh, but the way we select those vendors is often very lacking. Um, I mentioned that I came from the government space, so I'm a big fan of an, a good RFP process, uh, mainly because I think it forces people to understand why they're buying something. What capabilities is it offering? What are your use cases you're trying to meet? And then making sure you go through that structured selection process when deciding who you're gonna create an alliance with. And then um, the fourth one was investing in coordination is we, we have to coordinate within our organization. Um, when, when you look at the our adversaries, they have become incredibly coordinated. Um, initial access brokers have become a very popular uh, model for a lot of threat actors where then they pass it off to other threat actors in the kill chain. And to be honest, we in cybersecurity haven't done as good a job of coordinating within our own organizations. And some of that is because we don't know how to operate within an organization. We have trouble talking business language. We have trouble um, understanding like what a profit and loss statement is or how to read a 10K when that's how the rest of the business is functioning. So I really encourage people to um, understand how their business operates, what language they use, what's important to them, and then make a point of coordinating within that structure to become part of the business and operate on that business level. 
And then the final strategy that I cover um, is avoiding losing, which sounds kind of ridiculous on the surface, um, but uh, it's really focused on um, staying away from the easy mistakes where you know, tech debt, um, misconfigured cloud instances, um, unpatched hosts, public facing vulnerabilities, um, deprecated and legacy technologies. Um, those are all the easy things that just any script kitty can take advantage of. And so when we do that, we allow our adversary to get a leg up and, um, and then we're fighting uphill the rest of the time trying to defend our network. So if you can focus on some of those unsexy, and cool things um, that really have a pretty big impact on our ability to defend our networks. It'll make it a lot easier for your team and for you to kind of stay ahead of the curve um, instead of constantly trying to dig yourself out of a hole. It's funny to hear you talk about the art of war as, as the book, because I spent some time living in Japan and it was, I know it's a Chinese book, um, but I was given it on the day I got there to read by a colleague of mine and they were like, this is really going to help you. I was my early twenties, never really traveled, ended up in a country where nobody spoke English. There were no signs in English. It had been closed for a long period of time and, and they weren't used to having tourists or, or even business people there. And I was given this book by an American and said, read this. And I just looked at him strangely and thought, it's about war. How the hell is this going to help me in my life? And it's been a book that I've recommended to people over the last X amount of years as a book that can teach you so much just about life in general. And certainly to hear you talk about it in relation to, to security and cyber just just makes me laugh because it's, it's, it is key. I mean, it really, I, I find it a, a fascinating book. Um, and I actually gave it to my girlfriend's daughter to read when she was about 15 and she just looked at me with the same look as I did. Um, so it's it's great to hear you talk about it. Yeah, people always do kind of think of it funny um, because just by the title, people think it's specifically meant for the military. Um, but th there's so much broad applicability to business strategy, personal relationships, um, cyber strategy, um, just about understanding the way people behave and the way you should behave um, because there, there's conflict in everything that we do. And, and ultimately, at its core, it's a book about avoiding conflict and then dealing with conflict when it's unavoidable. Um, and so I, I think there's, uh, I, I highly recommend it for everyone as well. I probably reread it at least once a year. Um, and I feel like I take something new away from it every single time I read it. I hear a lot of, of, of common themes, uh, you know, with the art of war and in some of the conversations that we've had with, uh, I, I guess you would say the, the fathers of, of zero trust. So, you know, John Kindervog and, and Paul Simmons. Uh, and I hear a lot of, of commonality between what you've said and, and George Finney as well. I don't know if you know him, but if you don't, uh, we will definitely broker an introduction to George. Um, he's the CISO over at MS or SMU. Um, can you talk to me a little bit about uh, zero trust? Because it, uh, it's one of these topics that has been resurfacing, especially after the pandemic uh, and a lot of the, the cybersecurity major breaches, uh, people are starting to look at security in a different way. And uh, this is one of those uh, topics that just keeps coming up and up again. Um, in your role as a CISO of a major organization, um, how do you view zero trust and where it's going? Uh, that's a great question. So 
Zero trust um, in and of itself is not a gimmick, um, but I think there are a lot of gimmicks that are kind of surrounding it. Um, and it, it's become a buzzword uh, within the industry because of, because of those gimmicks kind of surrounding it. And I, I've kind of gone through my own journey with Zero Trust where when I first started reading about it, um, it sounded great in principle, but I didn't see how that was going to be operationalized. Um, so I was a little bit late to the Zero Trust um, approach, to be completely honest. Um, when And even when you think about the term zero trust, it, it really doesn't exist. Um, what zero trust actually is, in my opinion, is focusing more on explicit trust. Um, all of our all of our networks and the perimeter, you know, castle defense that we've have traditionally built um, have been built on implicit trust between um, users, between different systems, all contained within your fortress or your perimeter of your network. And so what Zero Trust is actually trying to do is to help us make explicit trust decisions um, continuously and constantly um, out not only within our perimeter, but outside our perimeter. And so when you think of it from that perspective, it started to make a lot more sense to me um, is we're just removing that kind of implicit trust that we've been granting to devices based off of um, things that are really, really easy to pretend. Um, and so once I started looking at it from that perspective, um, it, it clicked a lot more, more for me. So specifically from our organization or for our organization, uh, we're focused on trying to modernize our network approach, which includes adopting zero trust principles. It's no secret that healthcare is uh, a little bit behind the curve overall from a technology adoption perspective. But as we're looking at, at revamping um, our architecture and our focus, we're introducing those zero trust principles, um, but we're not going as, um, kind of blue pill as some organizations are doing an entire revamp in a 12 month period or anything like that. And I think that's going to be the reality for most organizations is that it's going to be um, kind of a, a, a slow and continuous adoption over multiple years as they hit life cycle refreshes, um, as it comes time to purchase new hardware, et cetera. Um, because I, I don't think the kind of blue pill method is a reality for a, a lot of organizations um, who just lack the agility and the overall IT and security focus for that that to be a reality. Yeah, I think you, you hit on some points there. Uh, it's, it's really hard to boil the ocean and have this conversation around zero trust with a board member and uh, get them on board and, and why would you want to do this and, and what uh, impact will it have on, say, revenue generating projects. Uh, so um, that said, um, what are some of the foundational items that you, you've done the exploration? You, you mentioned you do have an identity background. What are some of the fundamental items that uh, you would recommend to your peers to start to take a look at to you know, head down this path? I think the first thing that, that I recommend everyone doing and um, that helps dramatically with a zero trust adoption, but is also just good hygiene in general, is cleaning up your access privileges. I see a lot of people um, kind of diving down that, that zero trust approach and focusing on um, identity and access management or privileged access management, put MFA on everything, uh, which is great. That's not bad. But when you have um, stale accounts, um, you have third-party accounts that are still there from you know three years 
years after you ended a vendor relationship, et cetera, um, you're, you're starting again from that downhill and trying to fight uphill with zero trust adoption. So I think identity, in my opinion, is the um, first thing that everyone should tackle when it comes to adopting zero trust. And it's first just cleaning up your environment of service accounts, of identities, of access rights across the entire organization, and then apply MFA to all of those known good accounts that you know are actually legitimate access rights. And then kind of piggybacking off of that is the other leg of the stool, so to speak, of asset management, is you, you have to understand uh, what you're protecting and what has access to your environment. Uh, because I, I think without those two pillars, anything you put on top of it is um, just going to be security theater. And so understanding um, what devices, what applications you have, what access they have, how they're able to access each other um, and how they're configured uh, are, are that combined with your identity piece of it is, is how you're going to build the build on top of that solid foundation. So I really encourage everyone to start there um, because I know it's something a lot of organizations are still struggling with and are still buying a shiny tool to build on top of this kind of crumbling foundation of um, stale identities and not knowing half of what's in your environment. Uh, it, funnily enough, identity is something that a lot of people have said when we've asked that question. And I, I did a talk at Black Hat where we talked a little bit about identity. And we actually, when I, when I was doing the research for the talk, I find that there's a problem in some cases that people think identity is the start and the end they kind of just do that bit and they're like we're done um i'm gonna ask you the million dollar question if, if people stop at that point how do you think they get going again i know we talked a little bit about kind of asset management and knowing your systems and your devices and, and but i'd be interested to know if you stall at the identity phase and i get why people do because it is a big deal is there a way that like what's the next thing and i know that's a challenging question but kind of where how do you think they kind of kickstart that again it would kind of depend on how your organization is set up um if you're mostly on prem i think it would make more sense to to start focusing on endpoints um and and understanding um, how you protect those, how you understand the posture of them as they're accessing um, other resources within your environment. Um, I think you'll see a lot of ROI from that really quickly, not only from a security perspective, but in my opinion, even more importantly, is your user experience is going to dramatically improve um, if you focus on um, creating a frictionless access path from the endpoint. If you're mostly on cloud, I would actually go the opposite and I would focus on your SaaS applications. If you've got a lot of people accessing SaaS applications, I would focus very much on understanding what all those SaaS applications are, um, how they're being used, how you're brokering the access to them, you know, going down the CASB route if you don't have one already, um, but really focusing on, um, on how you protect those before you extend down to the endpoint. And it would really enable you to embrace um, kind of the, um, the BYOD um, trend that pretty much every organization is heading down as well. And then it, it will be really easy 
well, not really easy, but it, it will be easier to extend to the endpoint once you've already got access and to those cloud resources uh, pretty well configured and locked down. Um, it's a pretty natural extension to extend to endpoints that you have managed or that you have control over, and you've already tackled the BYOD problem um, by focusing on those cloud resources first. I know one of the things that I struggled with when I worked in corporate world was speaking to, to to colleagues and other people across other businesses that they felt that if you didn't have your asset list 100% or you didn't have 100% of the applications that you thought were out there listed, it was best not to start. My philosophy was always different than that. My philosophy was get as much information as you can about applications and devices and everything that exists and then start because actually then you'll figure out what else you might have. Because I, if you work for a large multinational company with offices all over the world, as both myself and John did, I don't think you're ever going to get to the point where you know about everything. There's always going to be stuff you don't know about, and you'll uncover it later on. If you think you're going to get to the 100% mark on devices or applications before you start, you'll never start. Um, so it's, for me, it was a case of, get to where you think you're going to be 80 or 90% with your asset list and your applications, start the journey. And as you start the journey, you'll uncover some other things and you can fill them in. So that, that, that was the way I approached it. So. Yeah, that's an excellent point. And it, um, a, a caveat that I should add to my first answer as well is because I do 100% agree with you, you're never going to be able to see everything all the time. And you never want perfect to be the enemy of progress. Um, and so continuing to be able to move forward is important. Um, wh where I have seen a lot of people struggle is that they get to you know, 50 or 60% um, or even 70 or 80% and they say, well, we're done. And then they move on to something else and it never gets revisited. And so my, my advice would be is to keep that as a top priority. So as you discover new things, you can get them added to your asset inventory. And then, you know, of course, uh, with with zero trusted option, you're always talking about building resiliency into the model. And so when you do get hit by something that you didn't know was there, um, it doesn't collapse everything because you you, you adopt self-healing technology and things like that that will allow you to recover from the things you're inevitably going to miss. So why don't we uh, change up gears here and learn a little bit more about uh, about yourself? Um Let's uh, let's let's start with a very controversial topic: food, um, barbecue, Kansas City barbecue, or Texas barbecue, or other. I live in Kansas City, uh, so I, I think I have to say Kansas City, um, or otherwise uh, everyone here might riot. Um, but seriously. It, I, I have tried a lot of barbecue at other different places. I even tried barbecue in Brooklyn, uh, which was a, a very misguided endeavor, um, but uh, nothing tastes like Kansas City barbecue, in my opinion. I, I'm always a fan of coming home and, and eating barbecue here. Yeah, I've visited Kansas City a few times and it is, it's solid barbecue. Absolutely agree. Yeah. So, so for a person that really only has experience barbecue in Texas, having, having come from the other side of the ocean, what is the difference between So those? Texas barbecue uses a lot of sugar um, in their rubs and sauces, um, which gives you this nice like crust, this outer crust on the food, which gets this nice texture to it. 
Um, but I don't particularly care for the flavor that comes with it as much as I like Kansas City. Um, I personally like barbecue without sauce too. Um, it's got to have a good smoky flavor to it. And uh, most Texas barbecue um, uses a, a pretty decent amount of sauce on it as well. And are the restaurants in Kansas City similar to in Texas where you rock up and you order the, the food by weight and they put it on a tray and you walk away feeling like you've eaten far too much? <laughs> There's all kinds depending on um, how down and dirty you want to get. Um, I, I think last time I had heard there were over 100 barbecue restaurants in Kansas City. Um, it, and they're, they range from walk-up ones like that to fancy dine-in restaurants, um, where, you know, you, you feel incredibly overdressed for the type of food that you're eating. Um, but th there's everything in between, um, d depending on what, what your style and what type of event you're looking for. I'm hungry now. You didn't, you didn't know this was a food <laughs> podcast. Um, <laughs> Talk to me about your ultimate weekend. Uh, I know Jay's probably racing cars. Uh, mine's uh, out, out riding my bike out in the middle of Oregon. Um, what is what is your perfect weekend look like? Uh, I, I'm a I'm a super nerd. I video game a lot, and so you'll catch me doing that a lot on the weekends. Um, so if, if I had to say perfect weekend. It would be the first day spending time out with my kids doing something they enjoy. Um, I, I love watching them run around and have fun. Um, and then Sunday would be nothing but hanging around, playing video games and probably having football on another TV. What, uh, what games and, and what are you Xbox, uh, PS2 or what? Uh, what's your what's your flavor? Um I am. I, I have an Xbox right now. I am still waiting uh, to get my my. Uh, name come up on the list for a ps5 they're still yeah, having shortages of that but i i switch between xbox computer and playstation uh pretty normally depending on what games they've got or what i'm trying to play um i I've, i'm a big fan of real-time strategy games and but they're only fun to play on computers so i use my computer a lot for that and then my first person shooters and sports games i i generally gravitate towards the console for those it's a real tricky one because, I mean, I, I got into IT from playing Quake and Doom. That's kind of how I yeah. ended up where, where I am today, I guess. Yeah. Um, and I remember playing Sonic way back in the day on the Mega Drive yeah. um, and, and, and games before that. But I, I, I just don't find the time now. The, the problem I've got is when I get a game, I have to literally spend hours and hours and hours trying to figure out i mean i remember playing tomb raider on my computer we're talking say 15 years ago and i got to the end and i you get a score out of 100 like 96 yeah and my girlfriend was like are you going to stop playing now you literally haven't left the room for like four days and i'm like i'm only at, i'm only at 96 I'm, I'm only at 96 i've got to keep going and keep going and she also bought me one of the lego games um yeah. like lego batman or something and then she refused to buy me any more games and pretty much <laughs> since then I haven't played. Um, but I guess there will come a time in the future, maybe when your children play games and you, you can play together, right? FIFA or if you're into those kind of ones as well. So, Yeah, some of my kids have started to get into video games and it, it's fun to play with them. Um, 
I, I definitely do have to avoid certain types of games uh, now that I'm an adult. Like I used to love RPGs, uh, but uh, you can get eight hours into an RPG and not even realize it. Um, and so I tend to play things that have a, a, a defined stopping points, whether that's like a level in a first person shooter or the end of a sports game or the end of a battle in an R RTS game. Um, something where it has a defined endpoint where I can say, okay, now I'm done. Um, because those ones that just kind of go for hours, uh, I can go right there with them. And next thing I know, I'm uh, exhausted and trying to stay awake for work the next day. <laughs> so I've got a, a delicate question for you then. Are you the kind of person yep. that lets your children win because they're your children? Or do you have to teach them a lesson in life that sometimes you lose until you get good? It, it, it's a mix of both in that I will not let them intentionally win, uh, but I will not blow them out. Uh, I don't want to shatter their confidence, but I'm not going to give them a free win either. They, they've got to learn to do that. That's what my dad did with me. My older brothers did with me. And I think I think it's important to learn how to lose. <laughs> yeah, I totally agree. So <laughs> <laughs> builds character, right? Absolutely. <laughs> Let's end on one final question around sports. Um, I'm going to go there. I know you live in Kansas City. <laughs> and uh, you're not a, uh, well, from what our understanding is, is, is you're not a local Kansas City sports fan of, of that particular team. Um, talk to us a little bit about your team, how you uh, became a fan of it, and uh, how you think they're going to do this year. Yeah, so I, I am a displaced uh, Patriots fan. I, I live in Kansas City and I work for the healthcare provider of the Chiefs and I'm still a Patriots fan. Uh, my dad uh, was a, a fan back in the 60s. And when they had the, uh, you know, Pat the Patriot logo and he really liked their logo. And so he chose them as his team. And so from the my very early youngest years, I remember rooting for the Patriots. I think the first year that I watched football was uh, Drew Bledsoe's rookie year in 94. And uh, I still haven't forgiven your Packers for the 98 Super Bowl. Um, but uh, and then as I kind of grew to like other sports, it just spread to other Boston teams. So I'm a, a big Celtics, Patriots, Red Sox fan. I just stick with one city. Um, as far as how they're looking this year, uh, I'm concerned. Uh, we we uh, we we're in a transition period from Brady moving on. Um, I like how Mac Jones looked last year, uh, but uh, the the rest of our team is uh, getting older, um, and uh, so we're we're kind of working on a refresh of getting younger and more athletic on both sides of the ball, and that takes time. So I, I kind of see us as a with the same position we were in last year, and that I think our ceiling is kind of like a wild card team. I don't think we're going to compete for a Super Bowl or anything this year. But if we can make the playoffs um, and get a wild card game, I'll consider it a successful season. And I'm really looking for us to compete probably two years from now for a Super Bowl if if all goes well and Belichick doesn't walk away. <laughs> yeah, coaching matters a lot. Yeah. Uh, this has been an awesome conversation, Michael. Uh, thank you for taking the time out of your day. I know it's super busy. Uh, we really enjoyed it. So um, thank you. Yeah, thank you for having me. It was a lot of fun talking with you guys. It's always All right. great to talk about food at some point as well. So thank you. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> we all got to eat, right? <laughs>
Editing and post-production is provided by John Spiegel. Sound engineering is expertly conducted by Chris Danby. Food recommendations? Solely the territory of Jay Tilson. Thanks for listening, and give us a follow on LinkedIn, as well as on Twitter. <laughs>